Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and tonight we want to look at verses 1 through 8. Romans 3, beginning in verse 1. Follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. Verse 1, What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, Thou that thou mightst be justified in thy sayings, and mightest overcome when thou art judged. But if our unrighteousness commend the, the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid. For then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather as we being slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. Now in the concluding Verses of the last chapter, Paul tells his Jewish readers that they, like all other men, are sinners in the sight of God. He reminds them that they need, uh, what they need is not an outward expression of religion, but an inward work of grace that converts the soul, makes the sinner right with God. And these verses are the logical continuation of the thoughts mentioned in chapter 2. These verses uh, uh, tell us that we uh, uh, are also sinners and uh, that uh, we need to be right with God. Now, remember, Paul was a traveling evangelist missionary. In, the early, in nearly every city that he visited, he went to the Jewish synagogues and shared the message of, the salva- of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in doing so, Paul... Surely it must have encountered many arguments to his message. It would seem that these verses that we've read this evening give us four of these arguments. And Paul is asking and answering questions that the Jews themselves were asking. And they were raising objections to the message of salvation by grace through faith. And these objections needed to be answered. Now as we think about these objections and the answers to them... I think there's a message for us here as well. You see, many in our day, even perhaps in our church, ask essentially the same questions. And I believe these verses hold the, the answers they and maybe even some of you might be seeking this evening. We'll take a few minutes and think about objections that demand answers. Notice with me these four objections under three questions. The first question is, why bother with religion? Why bother with religion? We see that in verses 1 and 2. And the first objection here is, is it, is it vain to be a Jew? 
Now, if you go back to chapter 2, since being circumcised in chapter 2, verse 25 through 29, and knowing the law, verses 17 and 18, and teaching others about the law, in verses 19 and 20, since all these things cannot save the soul, what is the point of being religious? The Jews want to know why they have to go through all that they have to go through if it does them no good. You see, they felt that because they were Jewish, they had a special relationship with God. They were God's chosen people, but even though they were special to the Lord, even though He had a plan for them, and He still does tonight, that doesn't change the fact that they're still guilty sinners before the Lord. Now, considering the fact that good works cannot save a soul, church attendance does not take one to heaven, and that clean living does not guarantee you a home in glory. So what point is it to be a Baptist? What point is it to be a Christian? Why join the church? Why attend the church? Why bother being a religious person if being religious will not do any good? Now you know if you're going to be a witness... And other people are going to know that you attend Spooner Baptist Church and they know that your faith means a great deal to you, then you may very well be asked these questions. Perhaps you've already been asked these kinds of questions. What's the purpose of going to church? Why be religious? You know, if going to church doesn't get me to heaven, why should I go? Well, what's your answer to these questions? No doubt it depends on who's doing the asking, I think. Are the ones asking, are they saved or are they unsaved? That may depend on uh, uh, who, who they are and what, how what their condition of their soul is and how you answer them. You see, what God is asking the lost sinner to do is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he will be saved. And until a person answers that question, then God hasn't really anything else to say to them. After he's saved, then God God will probably talk to him about some other things like church attendance and membership and baptism and so forth. But you might hear someone say, well, doesn't my church or my creed or my membership or my baptism help my salvation? Well, the answer is no. It doesn't help you toward salvation. Uh, But if you're saved, then these are things that are a badge or an identification. And these are things that are a way of, of communicating to the world about who you are. And if you're not measuring up, then your church membership and your baptism are a disgrace. Instead of being sacred, they become profane. Now, many seem to be asking that question in our day. Why even bother with religion? You know, there are a lot of religious people in the world today. People are fighting wars over religion. So why bother? And I believe some might be asking some Christians or so-called Christians that, that question, why bother with Christianity? They're saying... You listen to the same kind of music I listen to. You look like I do. You go to the same places of entertainment and amusement that I do. So what do you have that I don't already have? Why bother with religion? 
Well, gratefully, God has an answer for the Jews, and I believe he has an answer for our folks in our day as well. The answer he gives here is, there is value in being a Jew. Paul reminds or responds by reminding the Jews that they are blessed in every way, but perhaps the greatest evidence of their blessing was that they had been given the word of God. When God gave man his word, he gave it through a Jewish pen for the most part. In fact, only the book of Luke and the book of Acts were written by a non-Jew. And so God blessed them in that he had given them, given them his word. You see there in verse, um, in verse 2, it says, Much every way chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God, or the words or the utterances of God. He had given the Jewish people the revelation of himself and of his will for mankind. And instead of bringing them into a place where they walked in a special relationship with the Lord, he placed them in a position of greater responsibility. Because they had the truth, they were responsible before the Lord to live the truth. Now imagine tonight that you were on a remote island that was shrouded in darkness, and there's only one way off the island of darkness, and that's by means of a narrow footbridge that stretches across a deep chasm. And let's further suppose that everyone on the island is given a tiny little pen light, so small that it can only illuminate the darkness for one foot in any direction. But one group is given a powerful searchlight with a beam so strong it can cut through the darkness for miles. And although the searchlight has been given to this group in order to help them find the bridge, and so that they then could help others find the bridge, they use it instead to search for needles and haystacks. You see, that's exactly what the Jews were guilty of before the Lord. They argued about such things as whether or not it was against the law to spit on the Sabbath. We don't spit. I'm not saying my wife spits. I'm saying her son does. <laughs> that was an issue at one time. They used to argue about this. Uh, the Jews did. If you spit on the rock, well, it was okay. If, however, you spit in the dirt, it was a sin because you know what you did when you spit in dirt? You made mud. You made something. And you're not supposed to make something on the Sabbath, okay? That's work. They got it down to that little minute detail. They were searching for needles and haystacks with the searchlight that God had given to them. Instead of using the Word of God to lead men out of darkness, they were using it as a means of sending men deeper into spiritual darkness. Now, we're not Jews, and so let's apply this to ourselves in the day in which we live. But the same thing is true in our day as well. Men need not think that their good deeds, their religious living, their activities, etc., will buy them favor with the Lord. It just isn't true. 
But actually the opposite becomes true because the more exposure you have to the truth, the more responsible we are before the Lord. You see, if you plan to live a substandard life as a child of God, you could be better off to go to some liberal church down the street. In fact, you don't even probably need to come to Spooner Baptist Church in Spooner, Wisconsin, because you know what you're going to hear here? The Word of God. You see, our desire here is to preach the whole counsel of God's Word, and you're going to be exposed to the truth of God's Word. Now, if you're exposed to the truth of God's Word on a regular basis, you are responsible before the Lord to live that truth. James 1.22 says, But be ye doers of the Word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. You see, we've been given a very bright searchlight. It's called the Bible. And it tells us how to find the bridge. And it's also that which can show the way for others. Now, if we do not do just that, we will be held accountable before the Lord. We're going to answer for the light that we've received. So how are we using the privileges the Lord has given us? Are we guilty of doing the same foolish things that the Jews are guilty of? They were more interested in splitting hairs than living pure lives before others and giving out the truth of God's word so others could be saved and grow in the Lord. Why bother with religion was a question they were asking. And they were asking, is it vain to be a a Jew? And we could ask tonight, is it vain to be a Christian? And God was answering them and saying, there is great value. There's great value in being one of God's children. Now there's a second question. Why bother with responsibility? And the second objection is, has God forsaken us because of sin? Look at verse 3 again. For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? In this second question, the Jews were basically saying that they have failed to live up to their end of the covenant. And since that is true, some Jews have failed. Does that mean that God has written off the entire Jewish nation? What they were asking is, has the failure of some ruined it for all? Has the God of all grace indeed forsaken his chosen people because they sinned? And if he has, then why should we bother to serve him any longer? They were appealing to the greatness of the nature of God. And Paul's answer gives us hope as well. After all, who hasn't failed the Lord at one time or another? Notice God's answer. God is faithful in spite of your sin. Look at verse 4. God forbid. Yea, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and mightest overcome when thou art judged. Notice the vehemence of Paul's response. He says, God forbid. Literally, this phrase reads, may it never be. 
It's a very strong statement, even stronger by the words, let God be true and every man a liar. Paul's meaning here is in that in spite of what man does, God will honor his promises. God is faithful. Regardless of how wicked a man may become, the Lord will never give up on him. Even all the sins and the failures of Israel could not make the Lord give up on them. What a blessing that is, really. Think with me about that for a moment. Think about all the times you've sinned against the Lord since you've been saved. If if we all were to just stop the service right here and stand up tonight and testify, we would all have to admit that we were guilty of many, many, many instances of sin. And yet, that doesn't change the fact of God's promise. In John 6, 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. God is faithful in spite of our sins. I say hallelujah. Remember David? David was an, adul- an adulterer, a liar, and ultimately a murderer. But did God give, uh, give up on him? No, he forgave him and used David in a wonderful way. Remember Rahab? She was a wretched sinner before the Lord, but God forgave her and used her for his glory. Remember Simon Peter? He sinned against the Lord in a very open manner, and yet the Lord loved him and forgave him and used him in a great and mighty way. And the point is this, God will judge your sins. That This proves his right. he's righteous. Galatians 6, 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And yet after the sin has been judged, God will forgive your sins, proving that he is bigger than your sin. God is always ready to forgive. All he's waiting for is the man to get to the same place of readiness. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Proverbs 28 and thir- verse 13 says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. You see, regardless of where the road of life takes you, regardless of the sins you may have committed, there is forgiveness, there is restoration in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm sure glad that he doesn't throw the clay away. Jeremiah 18.4, And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter, so he made it again, another vessel, and it seemed good to the potter to make it. I am personally thankful that God's promises to me do not depend upon my faithfulness. You know, if it had depended on me, I would have I'd been lost a long time ago. Thank God for his faithfulness. You see, the unbeliever that raises the question is a liar, and God is going to make him out to be a liar someday. Why? It's because the faithfulness of God is true, and it cannot be changed. That's so important. In 1 John 5.10 it says, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. 
How bad is it not to believe that God gave his son to die for you? Well, I'll tell you how bad it is. You make God a liar. And that's what you do when you reject his son. You make him a liar. So why bother with religion? Why bother with responsibility? And thirdly, why bother with righteousness? In the next four verses, Paul deals with two objections here raised by the Jews relating to the issue of sin. He's just revealed to them that God is glorified through the forgiveness of sin. And so some have reached the conclusion that they should sin more. That way God could get more glory. Now notice their line of thinking and the response of the apostle, who's very wise here. Objection number three is, does God condone my sin? Verse five, it says, but if our unrighteousness command the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh a vengeance? Or taketh vengeance, I speak as a man. The argument goes like this. Since God was glorified through the sin, for instance, of David. You think back in the sin of David, and you think about his confession in Psalm 51. He said, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightst be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. And since God was glorified through the sin of David, in that David's sin gave the Lord a chance to demonstrate both his justice and his grace, well, it stands to reason that David was helping the Lord out when he sinned. After all, God would never have gotten a chance to show his justice or his grace if David hadn't sinned. And therefore, when I sin, you know what I'm doing? I'm helping God out. Then it's unfair for the Lord to judge men when I sin if I'm giving him a chance to prove his justice and grace. You know, that's a pretty slick argument, isn't it? Actually, it's a pretty sick argument because it accuses God of using sin for his own advantage. And the whole idea is one of promoting sin so that God can be glorified when he forgives. Now, even though this is idea is contrary to everything that God is, do you know that people still live by that philosophy today? Some people just actually live that way. They profess Jesus, and then they run out and sin. And when judgment comes, they run back to God, and they ask for forgiveness, and they testify that God has forgiven them, and the church praises the Lord, and then the cycle begins all over again. You know, we need uh, some people to make up their minds that they're... Uh, they're going to be steady for Jesus. I think God is more glorified when a person gets saved than lives for Jesus until the end of their lives. That is God's ideal plan for each one of us. Now, don't misunderstand me. God will forgive you if you fall. However, He has equipped us with everything we need to prevent us from falling. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which ye are able, 
but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Romans 6.14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. And by the way, when it says here that Paul was speaking as a man, that doesn't mean that this portion of Scripture is not inspired by the Word of God, uh, not the inspired Word of God. It simply means that he is presenting this question from the finite human viewpoint. Listen, the Bible is very clear and plain. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But the whole point is this, if my unrighteousness reveals the marvelous, wonderful, infinite faithfulness of God and the grace of God, then does God have a right to judge me? And that's what Paul is asking here, and the answer I think is very clear, makes it very clear that the unsaved world in Paul's day understood that Paul was preaching salvation by the grace of God. And that is wonderful. So the answer to this objection here, Does God condone my sin? No, God condemns all sin. Verse 6, God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? Again, Paul answers their argument by saying, may it never be. If God winks at your sin, then he has no right to judge the world. The idea here is that all sin will be judged by the Lord. Now, nobody gets out of this thing without his sins being judged by the Lord. There's a price on sin, and there is a price. That price is death. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And yet for those who have their faith in Jesus, our sins have already been judged and we're saved from the wrath of God. Romans 5.9, Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. And so listen, just because you haven't been caught or you haven't been judged yet, don't get too confident because God knows what's in your life and he knows just when and where and how to take care of it. Remember, be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So does God condone my sin? No, God condemns all sin. But there's another objection here in this Under this question, does my sin exalt God? Look at verse 7. For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why yet am I also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Again, they try to justify their sins on the basis that God is glorified through the forgiveness of sins. And so the question is, if my sins exalt God, then why does God judge me? If forgiveness glorifies God, then why not sin a bunch so God can get a bunch of glory? Well, it goes without saying, that's a foolish question. Yet we still see that kind of attitude even among Christians today. It's a doctrine known as antinomianism. That's a big $65 word. Holds the idea that we can do as we please because we're saved by grace. 
It says that morality and lifestyle doesn't matter. Since we're saved by faith, we can do anything we want. And nothing can be further from the truth. People will go through a time of sin in their lives, and then they'll come back to the Lord for forgiveness, and they testify, it's the best thing that could have happened because it brought me back to the Lord. Listen, I don't want to offend you tonight if you hold that philosophy, but that's just plain stupid. It's the best thing that could have happened to me because it brought me back to the Lord. By the way, Father made a rule in his home. There were two words that they should never be used, and that was stupid and shut up. And so in his home, the children would never say shut up or call someone stupid. And one day, the family was driving down the street, and another car swerved in front of them and cut them off. And in anger, the father said, watch out, you stupid idiot. In the back seat of the car, the kids all covered their mouths saying, oh, mom, did you hear what dad said? He said, stupid. Dad turned around and said, shut up. Again, I don't want to offend you with that idea or that word, but the idea that sin is good, and the more I sin, the more grace will be given to forgive me, that's absurd. Is that a better word? Would it not have been better for you to not have committed the sin to begin with? Would it not have been better for you to have walked faithfully with the Lord? Is it not God, is not God more glorified by the life that proves the power of God to be sufficient to keep a person out of sin? Even though God is exalted by the forgiveness of sin, He is never exalted by sin itself. And even though God would forgive you of a sin that's so terrible, He is not exalted by that sin. Sin in the lives of God's children can do irreparable harm in the lives of those around them. And God was glorified when he forgave, but that sinner who followed their example may have gone to hell. Well, God didn't get any glory from that, did he? You know, those children who watch you live for the Lord, and then for the world, and then for the Lord, and then for the world, well, they probably will grow up to be just like you, living for the Lord, living for the world, living for the world. Now, how much glory will God get from that? Does God condone my sin? God condemns all my sin. Does, God, does my sin exalt God? Well, the answer here is God will exempt no sinner. Notice again in verse 8, Let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. The last statement here Paul makes is very revealing. He simply says that those who hold this kind of philosophy of life will be damned and they'll simply be getting what they deserve. Sin cannot glorify God. He cannot condone sin. Since he is holy, God must judge sin. And since that is true, the sinner can rest assured that if he lives his life without a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, he will die and go to hell. Christian can be, can rest assured that a life lived 
half in and half out will result in a life filled with the consequences of foolish choices. The fact of the matter is that all sinners will be accountable to the Lord. Ezekiel 18.4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And so as we look at the conclusion of this, why bother with religion? Is it vain to be a Jew? Is it vain to be a Christian? There's value in being a Jew. There's value in being a Christian. Why bother with responsibility? Has God forsaken us because of sin? No, God is faithful in spite of your sin. Well, why bother with righteousness? Does God condone my sin? No, God condemns all sin. Does my sin exalt God? No, God will exempt no sinner. When a man is revealed to be a sinner, he can come up with some pretty creative ways to try and justify his his sins. I read several years ago, the House of Representatives voted 426 to 0 to reveal the names of all the past and present members who had bounced checks at the House Bank. It was an act that one commentator likened to committing mass political suicide. They tell us that when the list was finally released, it contained 355 names. Some of our elected officials evidently never bothered to balance their checkbooks. One wrote 972 bad checks. Another wrote 716. And the man who wrote 716 rubber checks is from the Chicago area. Surprise, surprise. He held an indignant press conference at which he loudly proclaimed that since no public money was involved, it was nobody else's business. With an air of extreme anger, he proclaimed, it's personal. But you know what? That's not the best excuse. The best performer so far was a man from Texas. He seemed to be making five different excuses for his overdrawn checks. One was, it's not a crime like child abuse. You know what that means? It's not so bad. He said, my people know I was sloppy when they elected me. Translation, they knew I was stupid when they elected me. And another excuse was, if you've ever bounced a check, check, vote for me. If not, vote for my opponent. You know what that translates? Everybody else is doing it. And he also said, the system is all fouled up. You know what that translates? It's not my fault. And then his last excuse was, it's no big deal. You know what that translates out to be? It's no big deal. Listen, those are excuses that people use all the time for sin. It's not so bad. It's not really a bad sin. You know, everybody else is doing it. It's not my fault. It's no big deal. Tonight we need to stop justifying our sins and do exactly what the Lord himself said to them. Simply confess them. Again, I've used 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, that word confess is the word that means to say the same thing about something. 
God says, my sins are wretched and filthy. He says they harm his kingdom and they rob him of his glory. He says that my sins hurt me in ways that I would never have thought about. And he wants me to say the same thing about my sins that he's saying about them. He wants me to come clean. And when I do, he's promised to make me clean. I wonder if there are some here tonight who need to confess some sins before the Lord. Listen, being religious will not save your soul. It will not buy you favor with the Lord. And the only thing that brings us near to Him is when we put our sins behind us. Perhaps you need to work on some things in your life tonight. Let me close with this. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. To the spiritual man, there's nothing higher than intimacy with God. There's no greater thrill for a Christian to have a close relationship with the Lord. The treasure of a spiritual man or woman is closeness with God. When it says there, for they shall see God, doesn't read literally viewing of God, the Heavenly Father. The Bible tells us in John 1.18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. In 1 Timothy 6.16, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. Even when Moses was in the presence of God, he saw merely the glory of God. And the Bible refers it to as the hind part or the back. So what is the Bible saying when it says we can see God? Well, it simply means that we can experience an intimate relationship with God personally. We can see God at work in numerous ways when we have a pure heart. We see him working in creation. Psalm 19, verse 1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. When you see the Grand Canyon or the Sierra Nevada uh, mountains, you're not seeing an, the accident of man. You're seeing a purposeful, purposeful creation of God. Through his creation, you and I see God every day. We can see God in the circumstances of our life. Someone who's pure in heart sees everything as sacred. Romans 8.28, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. God's hand is moving. He's working in the affairs of men, even in tragedies. We say, why why do these things happen? Because God's working. Life is a series of appointments with God. A pure-hearted Christian is not cynical. He does not blame God or question why, because he knows that God is working for his honor and for his glory. And someone who struggles with having a pure heart will often be cynical and discouraged. Nothing catches our God by surprise. There are no accidents with God. And then God can also be seen in his word. John 5, 39 says, Search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The scriptures will testify of God when Christ is not physically present. We can know God through his word. 
You know, many times Christians read other books and even good Christian books. And they'll read them more than they'll read the Bible. You'll not see a God apart from reading His Word. Because His Word testifies of Him. I wonder tonight, is your heart pure before Him? Have you allowed some things maybe to creep into your life that need to be thrown out? Have you set up a guard around your heart? The highest joy of man comes from cultivating the deepest part of man, the heart. When the heart is pure, the vision is clear. Sometimes the reason that our vision is not clear is because our heart is not pure. As long as you have a pure heart, you can expect to see God work in your life. And when a heart becomes filled with sin and cynicism and fleshly attitudes, God cannot be seen or his presence felt. And so tonight I challenge you to experience the highest joy known to man, to cultivate the deepest part of your life, make developing a right heart before God a priority in your life, and allow him to lead you on the right path. Let's pray.